Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our hearts this morning. Father, we give you praise for the good news, that love has come down, and yet I pray, Lord, that, that your word would act as a as a, as a mirror for us to see our own sin, that it would act as a, a searchlight to, to expose our hearts. Lord, that we would come expecting words of comfort, willing to hear the gospel message. Lord, for those of us who, who find these words familiar, who find the Christmas story ordinary, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your extraordinary, your extravagant love. Lord, for those who are listening this morning, wondering if your word is true, I pray that they would find hope and truth directly from you. Lord, may you bring clarity to the reading of your word as it's applied to our lives. By the power of your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The prophet begins with these words, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The, the words capture this longing that, that things would be so much different if God were here. It's a wish of the people of God that things could have turned out differently. It's a natural human instinct. Things, things could be so much different than they are now. And it's a sentiment perhaps all the more familiar to us at Christmas time. Dickens introduces us to that third nighttime visitor, to the terrible Scrooge. We meet the silent but terrifying ghost of Christmas yet to come. He shows the miserly Scrooge what his life could become. He shows him his own death. Dickens says he's a man gasping out his last, alone by himself. Scrooge begs then to see a death in which there was, there was a little bit of comfort, a little bit of compassion, some tenderness. And so he's taken to the home of Bob Cratchit. 
And that most famous then of of characters from, from the Victorian era, Tiny Tim. The injured, frail son of Scrooge's employee. But he's shown there the tragic scene of the death of this son. He sees the tenderness of of Bob Cratchit weeping over his son. My little child, my little child. He broke down all at once. Dickens tells us he couldn't help it. And then we're taken to that churchyard. When the silent, stony finger of the, the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come points to the grave. And Scrooge, in his reluctance, knows what will be written on it. He doesn't want to look, and yet we find Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went and following the finger read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. See, the desire to see a different outcome forced this fictional character to see his own failings, to confront his own guilt. See, Isaiah's prophecy begins with the lament, oh, that God would come down. God, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. God, if you had come, then we wouldn't be in this mess. And yet, like the the finger in, in Dickens' story, we're pointed at our own sin, our own death. This initial cry for God's intervention becomes a recognition that when God intervenes, I am found guilty. Because it, it begins, chapter 64, with this cry. That God would rend the heavens, that he would rip open the heavens and step down onto earth. It's the language of judgment, of God, the righteous and holy one, stepping onto earth. Look at verse 2. Such that the fire would set the twigs ablaze, uh, the, the boiling of water in God's holy wrath, in God's righteous judgment against sin. And initially, this is a good thing for God to come and do what? Deal with his enemies. That's the cry here at the beginning of Isaiah 64. Oh God, that you would come down and do something about them, about the problems I have, about the people that are my enemies and yours. Verse 3, it gives us a reminder that God has done this in the past, that he has come down and made the mountains tremble. It's a reminder of God's intervention during the Exodus, that God, when his people were trapped as slaves, came down. He led them out and gave them his law. God, in his presence, made the mountains tremble. God, in his holiness, brought down heavenly fire. And so the people are longing for that. God, if you would come down and intervene, that's what I need here. Verse 4 recognizes the greatness, the power of God. Since the ancient times, no one has heard, no eye has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, a God who acts on behalf of those who wait for him, those that wait in eager anticipation of God's arrival, those that wait with faith and hope that God is coming, that God cares about us, that God will respond. These words are are, are picked up then in the New Testament. 
in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, he, he, he quotes freely from this as if from his, his memory, not worried about capturing the word-for-word word, uh, uh, quotation from the Old Testament, but wanting, to, wanting to, to jump forward in the story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. He's jumped forward in the story to say that when God arrives, we see the unfolding of his plan. Paul, in this chapter, talks about the mystery, this, the wisdom of God, the secret of God that was hidden. For long ages, we, we wondered what would God do? How would God respond? And the curtains of heaven have been rended, have been thrown back, have been revealed so that we see what God will do. God is the God who intervenes on behalf of those who love him. But, but Paul's getting us ahead of ourselves back in Isaiah 64. Paul, remembering these words, is, is jumping ahead to the, 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 the full intervention of God and the loving response of the people of God. And yet in Isaiah 64, when, when we think of how God will, will act on behalf of those who wait, or verse 5, that God will come to the help of those who gladly do what is right, those who remember God's ways. See, this is that moment in the graveyard when the people of God are confronted with their own failures. God will come to those who wait by faith. God will come to those who are doing what is right. But look at the middle of verse 5. The disappointment, the despair. But when we continued to sin against them, against your ways, you were angry. See, the problem is, as the people of God are led through that churchyard, and they look upon the, the, the condemnation, they find their own names engraved on the stone. We are not those that have been waiting in eager expectation for the arrival of our loving king. We are those who have done our own thing, who have gone our own way. We have continued to sin. And so then, then Isaiah asks this horrific question at the end of verse 5. How then can we be saved? It's the recognition that, that to call for God to come down and destroy his enemies, it's a reminder that God can do that kind of thing. He's the God who can destroy the, the gods of the Egyptians, the so-called gods of the Egyptians. He can, he can flatten the great powers of, of, the, of the greatest army. He can sweep them away with a wave to rescue his people. And yet now, Isaiah is forcing us to see, forcing the people of Israel in the Old Testament to see that when God comes down as the judge, when the mountains tremble, when God will destroy his enemies, which side of this battle are we on? We are the enemies of God. And so the horrific question, how then can we be saved? Isaiah is forcing us to look at our own condition. Verse 6 says that we have, we have all become like one who is unclean. We are polluted by sin. We have rebelled against God. We are guilty. We are the enemies of God. 
He continues with a, with, a, with a terrible image. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We have become unclean, polluted by sin. Even the good which we attempt to do is distorted by sin. Not only do we rebel directly against God, but even when we try to follow His ways, we are guilty sinners, and so even our righteous acts have become like filthy rags. See, it's easy when you read Dickens to hate Scrooge, because that's not who I am in the story, right? I'm not that miserly, selfish, lonely person. No, I'm, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not Tiny Tim. I don't get the best lines of the story, but, you know, I'm in the Cratchit family at least, right? I mean, that's the way we want to think of ourselves. And this chapter begins with the cry, God, come down and do something about this. And then realizing when he steps into the room, oh, I may have spoken too soon. It's, it's like the, the child who demands fairness. It's just not fair. Only to realize, while his sibling may be more guilty, he certainly bears enough guilt to deserve the wrath of his parents. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, why won't you do something about this? becomes a question. God, how then can we be saved? See, because Scrooge is obviously a terrible figure. Every decision he makes is the worst decision possible. He is as cruel as he can be. He's as lonely as possible. And so you think, but that's not me. But Isaiah is telling us, yes, you might do some righteous things, but your righteousness is distorted by your sin. Your righteous acts are like filthy rags. Let's, let's just consider one example. This season is a season of giving gifts, a season in which we, which like the, the Apostle Paul reminded us of Jesus' words, it is better to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give a gift than to receive a gift. And so we, we take that to heart, and we, we give gifts at Christmas time because of the great gift we've received from God. Now, there are the obviously selfish ways to do that. You're giving a gift to someone else so that they know how expensive the gift you expect to receive in return is. Or you're placing sort of a social obligation that they have to respond in kind. Or maybe it's a little more subtle. We, we think ourselves good gift givers because people tell us, I mean, that's such, you're so thoughtful. I mean, it, it's, it's not the amount of money, it's the time you put into this. But we give that gift as if it comes with, with strings attached. We don't let it go until they tell us how great of gift givers we have been. See, we subtly can take even a very selfless act of giving a gift to another and distort it for our own good so that you will see how good I am at doing this. Now, maybe you are actually a really generous and nice gift giver. Maybe that's not your problem. But take something else in which you take pride, something else that you say, I'm pretty good at this. For preachers, maybe it's preaching. For you, maybe it's something else. Something that you see as a good and righteous act 
that's so distorted by your own sin that even your righteous acts in the eyes of God are like filthy rags. God, look what I've done for you. So that we reach the conclusion here in Isaiah that we have no righteousness in ourselves, that we're like leaves that have shriveled up, that our sins are swept away, sweep us away, like the leaves that fall from the trees with no life left in them, disconnected from the source of life, blown by the winds. That's what we have become. And so Isaiah reaches the conclusion in verse 7, no one calls on God's name. So God will act on behalf of those who are waiting in eager anticipation, holding on to the hope that he has given them. And he says, but no one, no one waits for God. No one is holding out hope. No one calls out to God or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. See, it's easy to find the sins in somebody like Scrooge or the Scrooges that are sitting next to you in the pews. See, we're good at finding the sins in other people's lives. It's an inborn talent to find mistakes in other people. Now, some of you have practiced and you've become excellent sin finders. But generally, better in finding sin out there or sin right next to you than sin within us. See, we, tempt, we, we, we tend to minimize our own sins, but then magnify the sins of others. Something that I would, I, I would, I would just brush aside as if, as if not even giving it a second thought if I had done it. And yet, she did it to me. Can you believe what she has done? Not, no attempt to, to give them the benefit of the doubt. No, we jump immediately to the worst conclusions. See, instead of magnifying the sin of others, we must be honest about our own sins so that we can magnify the grace of God. You see, that's what Isaiah is doing for us in this passage. We are those who have wasted away because of our sins, those who have shriveled up in spiritual death. Instead, we must be honest about our sin, so we can maximize the grace of God, so that we can see that, yes, God is the God who comes in judgment, but he is the God who will come to forgive us of our sins. Because notice the turn that takes place in this, in this uh, passage. Chap- verse 8 of chapter 64 of Isaiah turns in a, in a prayer to God. Just as verse 1 was was addressing God directly, that you would come down now. And yet, there's now the recognition that when God comes, we are found guilty. And so, verse 8, yet, O Lord, you are our Father. Words familiar to us, having prayed them in the prayer that Jesus taught us, to call God our Father, to recognize that we are in relationship with Him. This is the, the prayer of of hopeful expectation that God is the one who will act on behalf of those who wait for him, those who cry out to him, those who call him Father. The admission in verse 8 that we are the clay. God is the potter. We are worthless as we are. 
mere stuff, but, but God is the one who, who shapes us into vessels of, of beauty and purpose. We are the work of God's hand. And so verse 9 cries out, Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are your people. See, it's the recognition that when you throw open the door, when the heavens are ripped open and God steps down, you are one who will tremble before his awesome power. You will be caught up in the blaze of God's wrath, for you are an enemy of God. And yet even here, there is this prayer. Oh God, do not remember our sins forever. God, deal with our sins. Do not be angry with us, for you are the one who made us. We are yours. We're your people. We belong to you. You are our Father. And so in Christmas, we pray that God would come down to us. We pray that God would enter here. But merely to pray for the arrival of God is not enough. We need God to deal with our sin. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down is the prayer of Isaiah. And when we turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark, which began with a quotation from Isaiah, from the passage we read last week, that God was preparing a way for the Lord, for the coming King. Later in the chapter, Mark chapter 1, the Gospel story of Jesus' arrival. We're with Jesus at the time of his baptism. He's in, at the Jordan River, and this is what we read. Having, having heard these words, from Isaiah, that, that God would rip open the heavens, that he would rend the heavens and come down. We hear this. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. It's the language of Isaiah. It's the fulfillment of this prophecy. Oh God, that you would rip open the heavens and step down here. And yet, what do we see because of Jesus' arrival? Because Jesus has come down to us as a child born into poverty, born as a human child, a son of Mary, the true Adam here to perform righteous acts before God, now being set aside for the ministry to which God has called him, set aside in his baptism. What do we see now that the heavens have been ripped open? Is it fire that is poured out? Is it boiling water that is poured down? What, is, what does he see? He sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove. There is peace now with God possible. Why? Because Jesus is here. The King has come. He will perform righteous acts that when held up before God are perfect and pure and holy. For when he gives a gift, he doesn't do so for us to acknowledge his greatness. His greatness is beyond, is beyond doubt. He's the king of heaven, the one who made everything. Everything on this earth was made by him and for him. And yet, what has he come and done? He has come to give his life for us. So we need God to arrive as a judge, but we need him to come to take away our sins. See, the ministry of Jesus fulfills those twin prayers of Isaiah 64. God, get down here and do something about this sin. Oh, God, do something about my sin. Because what has Jesus done? 
He's lived a life of perfect obedience. Jesus fulfilling all the commands of God. Jesus always turning in love and compassion toward those who are in need. And so the Bible describes the work of Jesus, that Jesus has reconciled us to God because our sins are no longer counted against us, but have been paid for by Jesus. The Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 describes the work of Jesus Christ. He says that we have been reconciled to God because God is no longer counting our sins against us. Our, our filthy rags that we hold up to show God, look at all the good that I have done. That sin has been paid for by Jesus. Paul says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. See, how do you take your response and bring it before God and, find, and have God find it lovely and pure and perfect? It's only through the work of Jesus. Jesus, who has reconciled us to God because he paid the penalty for my sin. He became sin for me so that I might now actually be righteous. Not a false righteousness tainted by my own sin. Not a righteousness that I try and wrap up and make look pretty, but has is, but is obviously been, been the, the, the work of a, of a fool who brings this before God and says, God, look what I've done, these filthy rags. This is, this is my best. Now, Jesus has taken all of that, not just my best, but my worst that which I would not say out loud, that which I dare not let, let anyone know, Jesus has taken my sin upon himself. And in this great exchange, he takes my sin and gives me his righteousness. So when I stand before God, he doesn't see my filthy rags. Those have been dealt with. I've been cleansed. I've been washed. I have been made whole through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who has responded. He is the one who has taken my sin. And so our response is to come and put our trust in Jesus. Jesus loved us perfectly. He gave himself completely. Oh God, that you would rip open the heavens and come down in judgment. Oh God, let that judgment fall on someone else that I might be forgiven. We have to cry out to God to be those that wait in hope, to cry out using the words of Isaiah, O oh Lord, you are our Father. Admit your sins. Seek hope in Jesus. See, because once you're set free from that desire to prove yourself to someone else, then you can genuinely love and serve. Now, never perfectly in this life, because even as one who has come by faith to Jesus Christ, you are, you are still polluted by sin. But you've been washed, the, the guilt of sin has been washed away. You've been freed from the shackles to your sin. So now you can begin to, to learn to love and serve others. And so find your hope and your help in Jesus, who is our Savior. The Father sent him. The Spirit has come in a symbol of peace, promising that what was 
told by Isaiah has come true. God ripped open the heavens and came down. Now, the turning point for Ebenezer Scrooge comes when he fears all hope is lost. He cries out to the, to the, the, the spirit who has, who has pointed him to his own death. He says, I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I have been. Why show me this if all hope is now past? And then Dickens gives us a glimpse of hope. Might not be a hope Dickens ever found himself. But there's a glimmer of hope in the story. Because we find Ebenezer Scrooge holding up his hands in a last prayer. That God would change his circumstances. Scripture has already been quoted in the story. That God is the one who calls his children unto himself. Now, you know the scene when Dickens awakes, fearing that it has been a a long amount of time that, that he is really with Marley, that there is no hope left for him. And yet he throws open the door and, and asks, what day is today? It's Christmas. He says, I am as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. A merry Christmas to everybody. Ebenezer Scrooge describes his transformation. He says, I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind, I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. It's as if the miser has been born anew, a child again. So, you know, when you read the story, you're supposed to not merely feel happy for him, but to see your own misery. Do you see your sin? Do you have the hope of new life? So you must come to the place where you admit even the best thing you have ever done is but a filthy rag in the sight of a righteous God. You must find your hope in God alone, but this Christmas... Be reminded of this hope. God has ripped open the heavens. Jesus has come down. There is new hope for us today. Dickens ends with those familiar lines. It was always said of Scrooge that he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. And so as tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Oh, God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Jesus Christ has come. It's Christmas. It is Christmas. God has come. Jesus came to deal with the the sin of God's enemies. Jesus came down to take away my sin. Let me pray that God would apply his word into our lives. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. 
thankful for the way that you work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray that in this Christmas season, we would, we would not run past the familiar, but we would be confronted by the, the power and the majesty of Jesus. Lord, that we would not be merely those who are good at pointing out the sin in the lives of others, but we would be willing to acknowledge the sin that's in our own hearts. Father, I ask that you would, you would give us, those who have, have followed Christ, you would give us the patience to wait for his return, the, the joyful expectation that he is coming again. Lord, let us see our sin. I pray that you would transform our hearts and our lives. Lord, for those that have listened to your word and, and yet have never put their faith in Jesus Christ, have not thrown themselves upon your mercy, that this Christmas would be a Christmas of new life, of great hope, of true and lasting joy, that we would see ourselves when we come to you by faith as your children, as your people, as those that belong to you. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus, our Savior. Apply this gospel hope to our lives this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.